Good morning, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors on staff and I get to uh, preach the text this morning. This is quite the foreboding little text, you know. It's, it's a, kind of a bit of a bummer of a thing. You know, like even like the way the text ends, and it was night. And it's like the, this big theme in the book of John we've seen so far is like this light versus dark. And here we actually have what many in church history have considered to be like the darkest point in world history where God in the flesh is betrayed, and it was night. You know, so far what we've seen in this narrative is there's like this kind of pace to things that's been pretty quick. Jesus does this, there's a miracle, this happens, miracle, this happens, miracle. But in the last couple chapters, it's actually slowed down big time. And here the narrative slows down to the slowest point, like it gets icy cold. Right? I don't know if any of you ever read the um, book Dante's Inferno or the, the image or the metaphor of it. I had to read it in middle school. You know, I just remember thinking like those medieval people were weird. That's like the main thing I remember thinking of it. But you, you, they talked about how there's different levels of hell in Dante's Inferno. This is kind of the medieval Catholic imagination. It's not a biblical work. They're not like reflecting on scripture. They're just kind of going, what if it's like this hypothetical, what if there's different levels of hell for like different types of terrible people? And like the, the worst, lowest level of hell was the level of betrayal or treachery. The place for people who break a special bond of trust for their own selfish gain and stab someone in the back, literally or metaphorically. Not only that, but the worst layer of hell, the place of betrayal, had four different regions in it, and like the city capital in this layer of hell, in this imagination, was a place called Judeca, named after Judas. So we're looking at like the shortest, iciest, and like one of the part of the, the metaphors that they talked about in that place in Dante's Inferno was that it was like so cold that people could barely even move. Like they just iced over. Think about like someone who's like an icy person or an icy villain. Like that's kind of where some of that imagery comes from. And this morning, we're looking at the greatest sinful act in human history. If it's your first time, glad you joined us. Yeah. <laughs> But it is a bit of like an intense text, right? You have this like slowing down, Jesus dips his thing, eye contact with Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Everyone's confused. Only Judas and Jesus know what's happening. Judas runs out under the cover of darkness, thinking he can hide from God because the sun is down. Silly. Um, But this morning we're looking at this text and just a kind of a quick question for you all. Do you remember the first time you were betrayed Betrayal, someone you thought you could trust, ends up not being trustworthy. It kind of shatters you a bit. There's kind of like a youthful naivety. Like I see these little kids running around, like my son, you know, he's blowing bubbles and having a great time. And right now he loves playing with balloons, right? And he'll bounce on the balloons and play around with the balloons and flip. And and I'm just like, he loves that balloon so much because he's never had a balloon pop in his face yet. Once that balloon pops, game over with the balloons, you know. But he's he's like there's like this like naivety because the balloon hasn't hurt him yet. He's okay with playing with the balloon. But it, it like everyone, all the adults, you know, he's bouncing on a balloon because he weighs like 28 pounds or something like that. And apparently, if you don't blow the balloon up all the way, they're pretty resilient. But he's bouncing on the balloon. He's jumping on the balloon, and all the adults in the room are like like waiting for the explosion, but it hasn't come yet. Even but it's similar with him. Like he he laughs at everything that's really funny. He like trusts strangers. He's nice to people. He's like super full spirited and joyous. 
And I, the other day I thought, like, you know, we all used to be like that. Open, curious, able to, like, laugh without inhibition. But I remember when it all came crashing down for me, it was in first grade. The first time I remember being betrayed. This, you know, it, it's, as an adult looking back, it's small, but I remember as a first grader. It was, like, second day of first grade. It was my first year of public school, you know, which, you know, if you want your kid to get ruined, you know, public school, you know. So <laughs> went to public school, and we're running around, and it's, you know, there's, like, rules at, you know, like, no hitting, no running on the sidewalk. And me and my buddy were running on the sidewalk because we're first graders, and you have the attention span of a goldfish, you know. So you just go running on the sidewalk, and all of a sudden there's a teacher there. Hey! No running on the sidewalk. And the kid, I don't know his name anymore, I've so blacked him out of my mind, turns to me and says, he made me do it. And I just remember thinking, like, I, had, I couldn't say anything. I only need to defend myself. It was like my, my little you-can-trust-people bubble just went, you know. And for, but think, think a little more seriously. When was the first time you were betrayed? It might have been like some little harmless story, some kid blaming you for running on the sidewalk. Uh, but there's probably something more substantial there. Deeper, realer trust. A deeper, realer backstabbing in a way that's kind of made it harder for you to like quickly connect with people, kind of a layer of callousness or cynicism in the way you interact with folks. And so we look at this text and see how like the pinnacle, the turning point of this narrative is Jesus, God in the flesh, the sinless one, the one, like the one sinless victim ever. And he's betrayed. And there's something about us that we go. If it happened to Jesus, maybe he gets it. What happened to me? But what he wants to see in this text is actually not just one person we're supposed to connect with in this text. That we are all complicated people, right? We're all full of sin. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know you're saved. Um, you're also a sufferer, and that you've been betrayed. And so there's actually three big characters in this text: Jesus, Judas. And John, John's the less obvious one. But I want us to see how all of us connect with Jesus as sufferers. As sinners, we connect with Judas. We're all like Judas. That's going to be the bad news this morning that you're going to all have to come to grips with, that you're like Judas. And the third one is that we're like John. And we'll get into that as we move forward. But I want to pray for us and ask that we can enter into the coldest, most dark little story and see how we're kind of like all the different people in the story at the same time. So let me pray. And then uh, we'll go forward. Uh, Jesus, I hope, pray that you will help us see how good you are in this text and that you will help us see the various ways that we're not like you and that we are like you. I ask that we would be um, a more faithful people because of being here this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. So the first thing we see is that as sufferers, we identify with Jesus. One of the most common heresies we have in the very first century of the church was this idea that Jesus didn't really take on flesh. They just thought he was like a hologram like Tupac or a ghost like Casper. And so they would say, because if he really took on flesh, then you'd have to really feel pain. You'd have to really live on this earth. Because texts like this, you're, go, you're going, it makes God kind of look bad. That God can be woundable. That God is able to be hurt. 
that God is able to be betrayed. That to the first century Greeks, this idea that the all-knowing Most High God is able to be affected by um, the mischievousness or the, the, the deviousness of humanity, it wouldn't make sense. Even that there'd be an emotional stirring upness here. We see in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was stirred up. He was shaken. These are like the negative form of butterflies in your tummy. Right? He's having an emotional reaction in his body that's anxiety about the future. This is not Jesus going, I can predict the future. This is Jesus knowing Judas is going to betray him. And it's going to lead to his torture. And it's going to lead to his death. So Jesus is stirred up. He's flustered, is another term for this, by the reality of the forthcoming betrayal. You can identify with that. You've been anxious about what's about to happen. You've known that things are unfolding negatively for you or for a loved one. You've been in that position. Some of you have been actually betrayed to such a degree that it feels isolating. You're going, who could possibly get what it's like to have been stabbed in the back like I have been? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in a work relationship. Maybe it's by an employer, a friend, a loved one. That there's this real kind of like temptation to think nobody gets me. And so the secondary suffering is the isolation that the suffering produces, is that nobody understands. And one of the beauties of like the Christian gospel of the biblical reality is that even if other humans don't get you, God has been in your shoes. God gets you. That one of the hard things that I find, even like when sitting with people who are suffering in either unique or who are suffering in fairly typical ways, is helping us discover this reality that even if I feel like none of you get me, I know that God gets me. And he doesn't just get me because he's omniscient, like he knows everything. It's not just a Jesus knows everything, but he's actually felt what I'm feeling. That's a different level of getting it. It's one thing to intellectually grasp somebody else's pain. It's another thing to saying, I have felt, I have had that feeling. And I've been in that position that you've had that feeling. So Jesus is showing us that he gets us as sufferers. That part of God's design in this story was that he would suffer the worst form of sin, which is that betrayal by a close loved one. Someone who had given special access. Someone who was intimately connected to what you were going through and doing. And someone used that special access against you. This is one of the great fights we have as Christians, as humans, not even as Christians, is to not... Uh, react to betrayal and pain by putting up this castle wall and becoming like an individual castle, but trying to allow ourselves to remain woundable and vulnerable to be open to this type of pain because we know that love is risk. We know that relationships include risk, that to give anyone access to your heart, mind, soul, and feelings is to open yourself up to serious pain. And that pain is relative, right? The the relational pain that you experience as a high school when your girlfriend breaks up with you is different than the relational pain you experience when your spouse of 35 years ends up being not who you thought they were. That's part of the things with suffering is it's like a gas. You know, you have solid liquid gas. One of the definitions of gas is it takes the shape of its container. Right? That's kind of like middle school chemistry, right? The gas takes the shape of its container. Suffering is kind of like that. Like whatever your size of your container the gas fills all the way up. That's one of the reasons why like a sophomore who just got broken up with feels like I know what it's like when your spouse of 35 years betrayed you, even though it's like that's not the same. But 
the suffering takes shape as a container. It's like a window into my backstory here. This is, uh, so I had a high school girlfriend, and she is a part of this really good small group of, like at the church, kind of like we, here we have mentor groups, and uh, her whole small group was against me. Right? They're against me. They, want, they thought she should not have been dating me. Right? And so I didn't like it when she went to small group because I knew that they were going to be steering that ship away from me. Right? And there was one day she went to small group. We had been dating three weeks, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, And she went to small group, and I get a text. I knew she was at small group. Hey, can we come over? Can I come over? I need to talk. And I was like, oh, I was troubled in my spirit, you know. <laughs> troubled in my spirit. And I was, I was like full drama high school boy. I went and laid on my back in the driveway in front of my parents' house. And her car pulled up and I just kept laying there. <laughs> she gets out and sat down next to me. And... I tried to quote this text. <laughs> what you're going to do, do it quickly. <laughs> because I'm like Jesus, and she's like Judas. What I actually said was, do what you came here to do, uh, which is equally dramatic but not biblical, you know, so I whiffed on that opportunity. So she broke up with me. And I deleted her number from my phone and said, have a nice life, and walked inside. And that was, uh, you know, she should have broke with me. Anyway, she's my wife now, so <laughs> it all worked out. It all worked out. But betrayal. You said you want to be my girlfriend. Liar. You did not want to be my girlfriend. Um, so I gave her space for a couple months, and we eventually uh, you know, worked it out. So... But it's interesting, even just reflecting back on how stupid I was as a 17-year-old, believing in that, like, my world was coming crashing in. There's something about, like, that, like, the emotion was real, even though, like, my three-week, girlfriend of three weeks is breaking up with me. In hindsight, you're, like, pathetic, right? You know, like, but the emotion was real at the time, in the moment. Now, you have perspective. But that, believing that, like, Jesus had that emotion, he was troubled in his spirit, Judas is about to betray me. That even like silly, dramatic, 17-year-old Seth, like Jesus gets that. Much less like different levels of like real, like that's not even real betrayal. Breaking up with your boyfriend's not betrayal. If he says it is, definitely break up with him. That's manipulative and unhealthy, you know. But, but like there's other forms of like actual betrayal that like the same shirt up in your spirit, that like kind of like where your arms get hot, you sweat through your shirt and that Jesus gets that. That's nuts. Jesus gets that. Do you feel like God understands what it's been like? Whether your betrayal is a 1 out of 10 betrayal or a 10 out of 10 betrayal, Jesus really gets that. And we identify with Christ in that. One of the ways we're not like Jesus in this way is the way that Jesus is able to serve and love Judas even as he's being betrayed. You're probably familiar with Psalm 23, one of the most famous texts in the Bible. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here you have Jesus preparing a table for his enemies. Not even in the presence of his enemies, but for his enemies. 
Jesus is perfectly um, like living into and showing us the text in Romans chapter 12 that none of us probably do very well. But here's what Jesus does. He says, um, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, he'll heap burning coals on his head. This is kind of like what your mother taught you, you know, kill them with kindness. You know, we don't return blow for blow. We don't go insult for insult. It's not wound for wound as Christians. That enemy love, enemy service, is something that's unique to the Christian story. Because most of world history, it's been the powerful rule over the powerless. It's been eye for an eye. But here you have Christ modeling for us this intimate connection, saying, I'm going to continue to serve you even in the moment that you're about to betray me. We are not like that. We descend into warfare. We get swept up. Sometimes if we don't retaliate, it doesn't even, it's not even really because we're loving, it's because we're just afraid to retaliate. Some of us would be way more sinful if we had more courage. We mistake holiness for just cowardliness. I would have, but I didn't have the guts to hit him back. So we identify with Christ in the story. At the same time, we're like, I'm nothing like that guy. We're probably more like Judas most of the time. And this is one of the things we see about Judas. Like when Jesus, you know, this is part of like what Romans 12 was talking about. Is like when you have an enemy who wants to be an enemy with you and you return that, return their hostile actions with kindness, it actually like uh, infuriates them further. It frustrates them. Because if you act like someone who's worthy of being their enemy, if you start boxing, it's like, aha, an opponent. They've consented to this battle. But if you act kind, it actually makes them more mad because it's no fun to just beat someone up. It's fun to win a fight. So you're kind of heaping burning coals on their head. And that's what happens. And that's what it says when, when Jesus continues eye contact with Judas, saying, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And he serves him. This is what it talks about when it says, Satan entered Judas and he goes off. One of the temptations we face here is to believe that we're better than Judas. I would never do what Judas did. How about you? Would you do that? Especially when I tell you that like in the other Gospels, it talks about how Jesus did it for probably 30 pieces of silver, which most likely was about 400 bucks. Isn't that disappointing? When I found that out, I was disappointed. I was hoping at least Judas got like a million dollars or something. Right? I mean, we'd play that game in the high school locker room, like, what would you do for a million dollars? And people would just say, you know, gross things. I would do that for a million dollars. And I just remember thinking, like, you people are so, like, lame, you know, <laughs> like, I would do this for a million. And it's just, like, kind of gross, you know. But here, Judas gets 400 bucks. There's a song by this band, King's Kaleidoscope, where he talks about Judas sold you for 30 pieces of silver. I would have done it for less. Here's kind of what I want us to come to grips with the next couple moments. Here's Redemption Gateway is believing that we are probably more like Judas than we want to admit. So what's going on in Judas' heart? Why does Judas decide to sell out Christ for 400 bucks, 30 pieces of silver? What's, the, what's going on? A lot of commentators, people believe that what happens is Judas joins with Jesus because he's excited about a Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And he thought the Messiah was going to be the one who was going to overthrow Roman rule, liberate the Jews, lead this military victory over their oppressors, and there's going to be this conquering king who's coming once and for all to liberate the Jews from their um, political oppression. And Jesus is this kind of lame duck, serve your enemies guy. And Judas is not on board. 
and Judah starts to get concerned about being on the right side of history. He starts going, this is not going well for Jesus. Public opinion is doing this. The religious leaders, their opinion is doing this. I thought this was going to be an up and to the right situation, and it turns out this is a down into the right situation. We're trending negatively. Maybe it's time to flip teams. If this guy gets murdered and overthrown, I don't want to be on the losing side. I've got to choose a side of victory. So maybe it's not even Judas's desire for money, but it's his desire for power that drives him to pick the right side of history, to switch teams, to go that direction. And even a next step further, when we consider the primary metaphor that we have for sin in the Old Testament in particular is that it's adultery, because the metaphor is that we are the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. And that when we sin, we don't just mess up, we don't just make a mistake, we don't just stumble, we actually get into bed with false gods. That sin's actually adultery. All sin is, in a sense, betrayal. It's saying, no thank you, Lord Jesus, I'm going to choose to be gratified under some other king. And so I'm not saying that all of the sin we all commit is as damaging as Judas's sin, but I'm saying the heart condition that created Judas's sin is our heart condition. This happened a couple times with like new believers that I would disciple who they'd be in a bad financial spot or in a bad relational spot and they would become Christians or come to Jesus so that Jesus would help them with their sexuality or they'd come to, Christ, come to Jesus so that Jesus would help them with their finances and they'd come to Jesus so that Jesus would help them get a job. And what it actually revealed over time was that these people never came to Jesus as Lord. They came to Jesus as someone who's going to save them so they could continue to serve their real God, which was sex, money, and power. And as soon as Jesus is, not, is going, I'm not going to help you serve your false God of sex, money, and power, they're like, well, I don't need this guy anymore and they leave. And so we, just like Judas, have this tendency to use God to serve our real gods. The big three are sex, money, power. Most people who train wreck their faith, who train wreck their life, has something to do with sex, money, power. Judas, you know, seems like it was mostly a power money thing, maybe a money power thing. But think about it. If God took away your ability to self-define, self-direct, and self-decide your sex, your money, your power, that ends up being like the, one of the bigger breaking points for a lot of us. It's actually like, one of the, like when I talk to a new Christian, someone who's like new to the church, one of the ways that like over time I try to see if it's like they're kind of having an emotional experience or if they're like really being converted unto the Lordship of Jesus is how is Jesus affecting their sex, their money, their power? And see, what we see with Judas here is that Jesus never got a hold or Judas never gave Jesus hold of his money or his power. We're like Judas. We're adulterers. We're betrayers. One of the ways that actually we uh, experience self-righteousness creep in our hearts, minds, and souls is we start to believe that we're not like Judas. I would never. I can't believe you would. And it kind of, instead of believing there but by God's grace I would go, we start to believe Thank the Lord I'm not like that worse than me person. So think about it. Like you might intellectually kind of be in this position of going, yeah, 
I theoretically believe that my sin is like Judas' sin or I'm like Judas. But do you really think that you're a betrayer of God like Jesus? This is one of the reasons why that whole like multiple layers of hell thing doesn't really work out is because everyone goes to that Judas layer of hell. Because <laughs> we all betray God. We all run after false lovers. We all jump into bed with the God's name to sex, money, and power way more often than we want to admit. So there's one level of hell, and it's the one we would all go to apart from God's grace. But it's worse than being like Judas, because it's actually similar to being like Satan, you know, the, the devil. Satan means enemy or accuser. And here Jesus tells Judas, or, or John tells us about what happens here. And, and John, what it ends up saying is, at that moment, Satan entered him. And you go like, is this like Judas being puppeted by like Satan? Like does Judas have a will? Yes, Judas has a will. This idea of identifying someone with Satan, meaning like this, one of the beliefs that we have is that we're like neutral and you can either submit to God or you can submit to something else. But the reality is that we're always submitting to some Lord. And a lot of the times the way it looks like is we're either submitting to the Lord Jesus or submitting to Satan. And submitting to Satan isn't just like, you know, your tongue sticking out and your eyeballs popping out and you going, ah, and like doing like the demon-possessed thing that happens in movies. Actually, like being like Satan is more just being an enemy of God. It's way more ordinary. And I'm not saying that like kind of like the supernatural demonic stuff doesn't exist. I'm saying here it's Judas is being controlled by Satan when he sins against God. Every time we sin, we are doing satanic things. Every time we rebel against God, we are in that moment identifying with Satan instead of identifying with Jesus. So not only this morning did we find out that we're like Judas, but we found out that we're like Satan. Elsewhere we see this in the book of Matthew. Jesus, uh, Matthew says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, <clears throat> the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is, you know you're in danger when you're correcting God. So there's that. But it goes on to say, Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but things of the earth, or things of man. So similar to Judas, Peter's going, Lord, you can't suffer and die. We have a, we have a, a military board of fight. He's like, you're, you're thinking about power and kingdoms in earthly categories. I actually have to go and suffer and die to save you from my sins. Get behind me, Satan. It's like when someone tempts you, you know, do you want that third cookie? You can say, get behind me, Satan. You're against me. You know, you're setting me up for failure. That whenever we are going against the direction of what God is calling us to do, we are metaphorically Satan's enemies of God, our sin is a pretty big deal. I think one of the biggest like tensions we face in American culture between what the Bible says and what people just generally believe about humans is that we believe that we're not that big of sinners. We struggle with stuff. We mess up. We're a little selfish. And if that's how sinful we are, then Jesus dying for your sin seems just like overkill. 
literally and metaphorically. But if we're like satanic resistors to God, who are like Judas, betraying God, getting in bed with false gods, all of a sudden you go, I need someone to save me from me. So do you believe you're like Judas? The good news for us is that's not where the text ends. There's another character in the story I want us to look at, and that's John. John's kind of the understated one here. Uh, this is actually the first time in the book of John that John writes himself into the story, so it's kind of significant. What we see here is that John, um, verse 23, introduces himself in not very bashful terms. One of his disciples, who Jesus loved, it's called editorial privilege, you know, let's see, who Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So this is a feast, and so the way the Jews would sit is they would lean, like with their legs out to the side, leaning on this, and they'd eat. It was designed to be reclining on purpose because uh, you're kind of celebrating the fact that you're not slaves anymore, so you can eat at a leisurely pace. Whereas in Egypt, when you're slaves, you had to eat standing up and go quick because you had to get back to work because the slave master was coming. So they're on purpose reclining. And so you'd recline like this around the circle, and so someone's feet were probably kind of behind you, and someone's chest was probably up right here. And so John is to the right side of Jesus, leaning back with his head against Jesus' chest. He's reclining next to Jesus. And the reason this is significant, he was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So this is the first time John's introduced in the story, is I want to look at the first time Jesus is introduced, and that's in John 1, 1. Here's what it says. It says, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That could be translated at the side of God, and the Word was God. The first time we meet Jesus is he is the Word who is at the side of the Father. And here we meet John who is at the side of Jesus, showing us that the intimacy, this is what it's meant to show us, that the intimacy that Jesus had with the Father, actually John now has with Jesus. That the connection and the closeness that God had with himself as Trinity, now his beloved disciples participate in that very same intimacy. And the intimacy is so close that to a degree, it makes us uncomfortable. Verse 24, and Peter motions to him, like next to John, goes like, hey, ask Jesus what he's talking about, because he's being cryptic again. So then verse 26 says, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Like this is like a brotherly, familial, physical intimacy that makes Westerners uncomfortable because we sexualize everything. There's actually multiple historical theologians who are not Christians who read this text and go like, maybe John and Jesus were gay. And I think that is an abomination of an observation. Partly because it's proving this reality that we're going, like familial, physical, non-sexual intimacy doesn't exist. Is that what we're saying? Like this ability to be close with a friend, like Jesus is with John, that you have to sexualize that. We're in a bad place as a society. We've like over-sexualized everything to the point that even like these close disciple friends having like non-sexual physical intimacy is something that like people have to try to pry into some type of LGBTQ agenda. And it drives me nuts. Like we have to ask this question. Are we okay with like John's physical intimacy with Christ in this moment? Because we're supposed to identify with John in this text as saints. 
When I say that we're saints, what I'm not saying is that we're all sinless. Like, if, especially if you grew up Roman Catholic, the saints were like the super Christians, the ultra ones who like did all this like super cool stuff. Whereas the way the Bible uses saints is actually describing the idea of devotion. And it's not my devotion to God that makes me a saint. It's actually God's devotion of me that makes me a saint. Some of you have like fine china in your house. And you're like, that fine china is not for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That fine china is for like when grandma comes to town so that she knows that we still use it sometimes. Or that fine china is for like Thanksgiving or something like that. Like there's like a reason that you have it. It's devoted. It's set aside for a specific purpose. And so it's, you could call that idea of devotion or set-asideness or special purposeness as saintliness. The word is hagias. It means holy, and holy means devotion. And so God chooses people and sets them apart to be agents of his service in the world. And so if you've been set apart by God, he has devoted you to his purposes. And so we don't say we're saints in describing I'm really devoted to God. We say we're saints in saying God's really devoted to me. And so John is not holier and sinless than all these other people. He's just been invited near to Jesus. He's not the disciple who loved Jesus especially well. He's the disciple who Jesus loved. We are disciples who Jesus loves. We have that level of lean back into Christ's chest intimacy with him. That purity of friendship. That proximity, that connection. You know, I have a dog and a kid, and I used to love my dog a lot more until I had a kid. Right? He, he had access to places that he doesn't have access to anymore. Right? And my, ever since having a kid, too, it's like two nights ago, you know, my dog's Calvin, and he's like afraid of thunderstorms, and he's like whining and stuff, and I'm like Google searching, is the pound open at 11 p.m.? Like... <laughs> I'm not trying to lose three minutes of sleep over an animal. You know, the, anyway, God loves animals. I love animals. I don't mistreat my dog. Don't email me about my dog. You know, he's, we calmed him down. He's okay, you know. But it's like, when I didn't have a kid, I'd be like, oh, poor puppy, you know. Now I'm like, get together, you're six, you know. <laughs> but part of it is like, now my son Jay has like this access that this dog doesn't have. Right, that he now he kind of looks up at the monitor and look at the monitor and say, Hold you, daddy, all done sleep. You know, he's not good at his pronouns yet. He doesn't I mean he's kind of getting it, but most time he says, Hold you instead of hold me. You know, there's he wants to be held, you know, and sometimes he gets heavy and sometimes it's annoying because it's like you have legs, you know, but it's but just this like, uh, but I have to remind myself, like, he's not going to want to be held forever. That's not that's his it's a vapor, it goes away. And I think, like, the access that he has being held, I like, like, like walking around with him. He comes up after the 9 o'clock service and screams, Daddy, and I hold him. And, like, there's closeness there. Uh, things I would never do with my dog, you know. That, but I, the more I talk to folks here, I'm not talking about, like, non-Christians somewhere else who don't know God. I mean, like, even Christians here in this room, that there's, like, this belief that, like, yeah, I'm in God's house, but I'm the dog. <laughs> he tolerates me. He feeds me, but I'm like in the kennel, under the table. I'm not in the bed. And it's just not where you're at in God's house. Like you're a son. You're a daughter. God is more patient than I am as a parent. 
He's never looking to put you down. He's always looking to hold you tight, be close with you. That even though you're suffering, even though you're sinning, he still looks at us. And the main person we identify with in this text is not really Jesus because we're sinners. And it's not really Judas because Judas never repents. It's actually John, the one who leans on the chest of God and is able to ask the question other people are wondering about and isn't rebuked for asking a question, but actually has knowledge and information that somebody else doesn't really have, that there's special access. I just hope that some of you today, this morning, will repent of thinking that you're like a dog in God's house, begging for scraps at the table. You'd see that you're a son, you're a daughter, that you can lean on God in a way that other people can't. Not because you're special and not because you're something but because you're washed in the blood of the Lamb. So we can identify with Jesus, having been betrayed ourselves. We can identify with Judas, having been betrayers. The shame that comes with our own sin. But I want to end on a note where we identify with John, knowing that we can lean on God and that he's close to us. Let me pray. Jesus, I do ask that you would help us see this reality, that people who have... uh, never felt that level of intimacy with you, would today experience it. That your arms would wrap around us and hold us tight. I pray for people who have been betrayed who are in this room, who you know, this whole morning was triggering and difficult. And I pray for people who have been the betrayers, who are having a hard time even forgiving themselves and are cloaked in shame. I just ask that you would uh, make the finality of the work on your cross evident even as we take communion here in a moment. God, I pray that most of all these next couple of moments be times that we can lean into you in the way that John did and be grateful for the special access we have. Amen.